did a funeral uh, of a young man who was killed by his drug dealer over $25. They shot this boy, then chopped him up and stuffed him down a manhole. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Today I'm with Father Jeff Queen, who is the pastor of St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. Before we get started, I just want to note that today we are recording uh, on September 11th. And I wanted to just talk about that a little bit. Uh, you remember where you were? Absolutely. I was actually in a church office, and the someone called in and said, turn the TV on, and we did. And it was the secretary, uh, the youth minister was there, and it was it was just kind of mind-blowing to watch what was going on. My wife was on maternity leave. Uh, our daughter had been born in July, and she worked for the Cincinnati Enquirer at the time. And we arranged for one of the ladies in the church to watch her, and I opened up the church for services that day. And she went in and spent the entire day into the night at the Enquirer helping to write write stories yeah. uh, for press the next day. And we had three services that day. We actually called into WLWT, and, and you know, they had a little ticker running at the bottom as the day was going on. And we probably had over a thousand people through the doors of the church during three services, just impromptu services that day, people coming in from the neighborhoods, just wanting some solace. And it turned out that later in the day, we found out that one of our members had actually w w went missing. Uh, she was in the South Tower, and we found out after a few days it was um, it became obvious that she had died in the wow. in, in the in the South Tower. So yeah, I I don't. Um, I don't often forget yeah. that day and just my own experiences with it. But. Yeah. It's it's uh, sometimes amazing to see how far that reach is. You don't realize how many people know people, you know? Yeah, yeah right here in the greater Cincinnati area. I have a friend who serves a um, – a church in in Manhattan, and they have a they commemorated a stained glass window. After that, they had several people that it was more of a blue blue collar parish, and they had several members who were first responders who died in that. And they have a memorial window now with the Virgin Mary on one side and the image of the towers burning on the other, and the names inscribed in the in the stained glass. So the months after that, I'm sure were. Not only busy for you, but impactful trying to get um, people answers or at least let them uh, convey their their concerns with uh, with everything. Yeah, you know, in the in the midst of tragedy, people even who have marginal relationships with the church, it's I think it's a grateful thing that the the church is able to be there for them. Um, across the board, church attendance in the second half of 2001 uh, shot up. Uh, the churches, specifically in New York City, especially uh, in my own tradition, uh, saw uh, triple attendance numbers throughout that year and into the next because people just 
I don't know so much if they were looking for answers as just they felt wounded and they needed a place where they knew they could be safe for a little mm-hmm. while. And that was one of them. Uh, the We have uh, a church, uh, Trinity Wall Street, which was close to the Twin Towers, and they had a small chapel um, that uh, uh, that is is very close to the Twin Towers. And they the first responders, the uh, police and the fire used that as a staging area uh, during the search and rescue operation that went on. And that, that particular uh, church uh, there um, uh, was kind of epicenter for the recovery and rescue efforts. Yeah. Well, it's a day that everybody on the planet truly will oh, yeah. will remember. So, um, so you are the pastor of the church where I grew up, where I was baptized, <laughs> and uh, you came into my life at the right time, very serendipitously, if that's a word, um, because I was, um, you know, I was a year into my recovery, yeah. and uh, you had been there a handful of years at, mm-hmm. at that point, and uh, I found out that you know about this. Mm-hmm and have been involved in recovery and, and some areas that were, were affected. So um, really uh, a very important person in my life. And, um, you know, just you, you helped me grind through some, some tough times. And um, I started a group there, uh, which you not only encouraged, but allowed us to, to use the space. And um, I said this in another episode, but uh, – for six or seven months, it was me on Thursday yeah. nights sitting by myself. And, um, you, you know, I, a lot of times I wanted to give up and you told me to stick with it and, um, things take time. And, and we had, you know, we're averaging about 12 people now. So, um, and, and you started a couple of churches yourself from the ground mm-hmm. up too. So I think, you know, about patience and yeah. So a little background, where yeah. are you from? So I grew up in what is now the epicenter for the opioid addiction crisis in the country. I grew up in Scioto County, Ohio, uh, which is uh, about two and a half hours east of here uh, along the Ohio River. Uh, During the height of that in 2007 and 8, when the the pill mills were still kind of in um, unregulated, just pumping out – uh, you know, Oxycontin into the communities. Uh, about one in five births at the local hospital were children born with with addiction to Oxycontin and other uh, other substances. That has settled down somewhat as of the latest study I saw, which was a 2016 study, uh, which is still um, old. It's 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 down to one in 13 uh, children born with substance abuse of some kind, uh, mainly pill-related. Um, and so that's that's that figure has gotten better, but the national average is like 1 in 66. And that still is, I think, remarkably high uh, the, of children born to some type of, of substance abuse. And I, I grew up in that community. Of course, I wouldn't do like a lot of people do. Couldn't wait to get out. Uh, moved away. Got my education and eventually had a call to come back to a church and served at All Saints uh, for almost seven years. And they were 
part of the the church itself had always been a part of the recovery community in Portsmouth. It while I was there as their priest, one of their AA meetings, uh, which I believe was either the second or third oldest in the country, celebrated their 65th anniversary. And this has been a dozen years ago, so it tells you how old that particular AA community was in that church. Uh, they their priest at the time when when AA got started. Uh, the Episcopal priest that helped Bill W. develop the the 12-step program, I believe it was in Akron, um, they, the, the priest who was in Portsmouth was a friend uh, of that priest and got connected with that. And so those relationships developed, and they, they were early on starting a, a recovery community in Portsmouth. Uh, when I arrived on the scene many years later, the ethos, though, was still there in the congregation, and there were, a, when I arrived, there were a total of six recovery communities, AA and NA, that met in that church, and there would be typically five or six hundred people that would come through the doors during the week, many more than we would see on Sunday morning, and so that church believed that part of its mission was uh, to assist in any way that it could uh, the recovery community um, in the area. Uh, one of the things that I started when we were there is we start we started a recovery Sunday um, each year, and we would celebrate the recovery ministries, invite people from those communities into the church uh, to to witness to their to their experiences with it, and and shaped a prayer service around the twelve steps. Uh, that uh, that and I'm pretty sure I've been away now. This is my eighth summer here uh, in the Cincinnati back in the Cincinnati area. And I'm pretty sure that they still carry on with that mission each year. Uh, but they were involved also in a um, uh, in a recovery community that was a not-for-profit uh, that involved counseling and uh, also helped with people coming out of prison uh, and uh, started an Oxford house, which is a recovery uh, recovery house for people who were out of prison but not yet able to get into a recovery program. And so that was started also on my watch there uh, by some really committed uh, members of the, the parish who believe that that was really one of their calls. And so I've had a, a lot of experience over the years uh, dealing with churches that have been highly involved uh, in recovery ministry. Um, interestingly enough, though, it took a while to get to where you and I are living at now. You know, it was a more affluent area, and I was seeing some of the early ends of that uh, being in poor and blue collar area uh, when it really started uh, first with the pill mills. And then when the pill mills sh were shut down, just the, the spike in the heroin use, because it was her heroin was the cheapest thing to get their hands on after um, Oxycontin and other things. And, and, you know, of course, then fentanyl being involved with that later on and just watching uh, just folks just really grasping for life and for meaning and reaching out and even in the worst places they could find to try to to try to find some meeting in their lives. And so Oxycontin came out in 96. Yeah. How far, because I, I read Dreamland, yeah. which is all oh, yeah. about, it's about, it's all about, about Portsmouth. Portsmouth. Yeah. yeah. And Dreamland was a pool that everybody went to. Now, was that in your day? Did oh, yeah. you go I, there when I, you were I, a kid? I swam in the pool at Dreamland yeah. on a few occasions. Yeah. yeah. Now, I, I grew up in a rural community about 10 miles outside of Portsmouth. I always claim Portsmouth is my home because no one's ever heard of, of South Webster, which is, you know, population like 600 or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I do remember Dreamland, and he used to uh, swim in the pool. Uh, there was a bowling alley across the street from it where I was in a bowling league in junior high, and so that that whole area was real prominent in the 
uh, in my early years. And kid. it was a thriving community at, at one point, it right? Was. I mean, it was oh, yeah. sh- shoelace yeah, there capital were, of the world. Until uh, the shoe industry moved uh, to Southeast Asia and other places, uh, 11 million pair of shoes were made a year in Portsmouth at its height in the 1950s. That's uh, just just crazy to think of today. Yeah, um, and the population, of course, reached its peak in the late fifties, early sixties. Which was about what? Um, I believe it was uh, eighty thousand plus. Really? Yeah. Wow! And uh, still, still was another big industry. Um, uh, the uh, there was a time when the rail yard in Portsmouth was the largest in the country until they added on to the rail yard in Chicago. People don't realize that either, but some of those footprints that are left of what used to be a thriving uh, blue-collar industry, uh, both in steel and in shoes and in other kind of ancillary businesses, which really in the 1960s and 70s started waning, and then by the early 80s, it was in total freefall. I remember when the mill mill closed, I believe it was, what, 83 or maybe 84, Uh, and then as a teenager, I can remember it basically being just a um, a brown zone, Rust Belt area, Um, and unfortunately today, it's a Walmart parking lot. Really? Yeah. So would you say that you know those ships passing in the night being the, the 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 industry moving out would that have been when the pills oh yeah pill yeah, mill started and it started in south shore kentucky is that like uh, yeah, across the right, right across right, the right river. there yeah. yeah right across the river um by the time i was there there were i think there were 9 or 10 uh, pain clinics in Portsmouth. And by that time, when I was living there, I think the population was about 16,000 or so. And there was one in particular in the community, the neighborhood that I lived in, and they were cash only. They had an armed guard in the office uh, and the doctor there, who has since been convicted and is serving jail time right now. She's in prison. Uh, but she, there was, she distributed one year um, I believe it was enough oxycodone for every person in the county to have a prescription of like 150 pills or something like that. I mean, it was just insane the amount of you know addictive substance that was being funneled into the community through places like this. Did the church or the city in in a movement of some sort? Did they ever approach these? Yeah, we did. In fact, that was one of the things that started. We had a couple of uh, lay people in particular that were highly involved in local politics and government. They were friends of the governor at the time, Ted Strickland, who was the the governor at the time, and really worked hard to get these places outlawed or at least highly regulated. And so what happened during the time that I was there uh, was uh, toward the end of my time there, we saw a real clampdown from the state. And, and many of them were closed, thankfully, and um, uh, a real reduction in that. And really, one of the things that we learned, uh, Trevor, in all of this is that the churches being involved, there were there are a couple of, of things that needed to happen. There, there needed to be uh, involvement in the community and in the government, petitioning for regulations. Um, there needed to be real community involvement of, of providing help to fill in the gaps and that's where things like the Oxford House movement and things like that came in, where we were helping people who were coming out of uh, prison who had been clean because they were in 
you know, they were away from the substance, but not quite in recovery yet. And so we were trying to fill in some of the gaps uh, with that. And the Counseling Center, which was the nonprofit organization at the time, uh, really developed a, a really good program. Uh, to help those folks who are coming in and out uh, of the system. And then the other part of that was the church is working to try to destigmatize the um, just the idea that if somehow you were addicted to a substance, you were either morally weak or inferior when it could happen to anybody. You know, and and trying to get rid of that, of destigmatizing that, and getting rid of, of of the kind of the taboo nature of that, and really bringing it out into the open. Yeah. And 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 so that was the thing, at least that we at All Saints in Portsmouth, we were working in those three areas uh, really deliberately to try to affect change in our community. When you were called back to Portsmouth, mm-hmm. was there an emphasis that you were going to be that that this was a big push? Or a big part of the not no not at the time because it was 2006 and it was just creeping into everybody's field of view at that point. It really, uh, really, it was 2000. It was a year or two, a year and a half later before some of this stuff really. We kind of everybody kind of woke up and realized we got to do something about this or it's going to eat a hole in our community. Did you ever find yourself caught up in the stigma of at at any point? in your professional career even before that that people that were caught up in this lifestyle were less than or were bad people you know curious well it's it's interesting because i grew up blue collar and so i i have not really been caught up in that idea because i grew up with people who were alcoholic uh and others so i have seen substance abuse firsthand in family members and other places and so for me it wasn't as much as a stigma as i think it has been in in places like where you and i live now that that are more affluent that 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 worry about image a little more Mm -hmm. you know i think one of the things when you're um especially when i was growing up i my family couldn't afford to worry so much about their image when they were just working really hard to try to make ends meet. You know, I think that was it was a luxury to worry about um, image. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that it was um, um, there were other things that were taking priority in our lives at the time. I'm glad that I live in a community that's clean and that worries about how their lawns look. I actually appreciate that. I love uh, coming home after a day and taking a walk in my neighborhood and knowing it's safe. I love the fact that if I forget to lock a door, I don't have to worry about someone breaking into my... And part of that is maintaining that that image. And so I appreciate all of that about it. The 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 dark the sh- the shadow side of that is that there are situations like this uh, where people who really struggle with substance abuse get put down or sidelined or marginalized uh, because they don't want to upset that image. When the reality is, one of the things that any healthy community needs to do is embrace people who are hurting and help find answers and help find. Um, uh, pathways to health in the future. I mean, that's if we really care about that image, it, well, then we're going to work hard to help those people um, uh, to find help yeah. and to find healing. And I think I think it's getting better. I but do too. Very slowly. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to single out our town, but, you know, it is, it's a bubble. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it is hard for 
people to break that stereotype. Yeah. Um, well, and you and I well know that the cost of that, of finally bringing it into more of the mainstream, has unfortunately been the lives of, of people who have suffered with addiction and who have died, who we have known. Um, and that's what has helped, in, the, in a sense, to destigmatize some of it. That it no longer was something that was happening to people in Newport or in Portsmouth, Ohio, or in, you know, uh, rougher parts of the urban area. It, it was happening in our streets. Right. And, and then it began to change. And stigma transcends what someone views, how someone views someone that has a substance use problem. Mm -hmm. It gets into families that are in it oh, yeah. and what they think the community is going to think. You know, when you, I, I've heard stories, I don't know about necessarily in Fort Thomas, but uh, of, of moms with a child ODing at their feet and they're too ashamed to call the ambulance. Yeah. You know, what are they going to think when they're pumping my kid's stomach out front? Or, you know, and, and yeah. that you want to talk about cost and lives. I mean, yeah. it really has a, you know, a stranglehold on a lot of on a lot of people because it's a it's a tough tough nut to crack. It is, and I think it even has a trickle down effect even further. I think those who suffer from addiction often internalize some of that of, of being stigmatized. And often have, you know, I mean, they already have diminished self-worth because of their struggle with the addiction, but also seeing that, feeling like they're being sidelined by their communities as well. Uh, I think that plays in uh, to the to that, that diminished self-worth of the individual that really keeps them shackled in addiction versus looking for ways of recovery and sobriety. So I just told my 11-year-old, who you know well, uh, about my because she wants she's so pumped about this podcast you know she yeah. really doesn't know really what it's about but i just i just i've been really worrying about when am i going to tell her and you know because she's now in middle school when kids are mean to each other and i didn't want somebody coming up to her and saying oh i hear your dad's a drug addict or something i wanted her to hear it from me and so i had that conversation with her the other day and uh and she was surprisingly she held my hand after I told her and, you know, it was just very, not how I thought it would go. It yeah. was very, it was a very special thing. And, you know, uh, but, but my point is there's, there's stigma there. I mean, you've got, you know, you, you can keep it, I could keep it taboo yeah. for my children and act like nothing's going on. And, but I, in talking to people that have dealt with it, that's just not the way to do it. Yeah. And so that, 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 that they're, and I'll tell the, the nine-year-old when it, when it's appropriate, uh, but, but so they can be involved in the journey and just know if it does come up, what it's all about and uh, maybe stick up for their dear old dad. Yeah. And part of that is, yeah, I was, I, I took um, my first degree at university from a, a university that was run by the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers. And, and, you know, of course, Americans, they, you hear the word Quaker and you think of a guy in a black hat selling oats, 
you know, or something like that. But these folks are remarkably modern people, and and we get them mixed up with the Amish all the time. You couldn't tell a Quaker if you met them on the street, except maybe they had a, a World Peace bumper sticker on the back of their their cars because they um, they're one of the historic peace churches. And uh, one of the things that they always talk about, uh, and and it, and that was kind of one of the mantras at this uh, university. It was Wilmington College. It was about an hour up the road from here, as they talked about the light and bringing things into the light, um, and anything like that that you mentioned, you know, of being upfront and honest with your child. Uh, that's taking that part of you out of the shadows and bringing it out into the light. And it loses power and grip over us when we do that. And that's the same thing with, um, in the 12 steps, first step is, you know, admitting you got a problem, Mm -hmm. uh, and bringing that part of yourself out into the light, uh, so that healing can begin. And it takes a long time to get there. I mean, when we first met, I was, you know, I was just riddled with the guilt and, um, stigma of you know what people are going to think of me and but eventually if you stick with it and you work the recovery um you can let the let the demons go and and take the power away from them and and get into get out of the darkness yeah which is a it's a i don't wish it on anybody let's just say that okay so i want to talk about individuals families loved ones that have to navigate this mm. um, disease. Um, so some may be religious, mm. some may be uh, spiritual in their own way, mm-hmm. or some may just be desperate and pray to God that they they get help. Oh yeah. Um, so their their mothers, their uh, sisters, whoever could be praying. Let my child live. Yeah. Let my loved one live. Uh, but at the end of the day some make it some don't yeah and i think with the latter comes questions yeah. comes uh, emotions resentments toward god yeah. and uh why was my why was that child saved and mine wasn't yeah. um and how does god determine who lives and who dies um how do you how do you help people sift through that yeah, that's a tough one. And I think about it. I think about the beginning of our conversation today. We were talking about what happened on September 11th. And one of the things I remember where I was at on September 11th, but I also remember uh, some of the words from my sermon during that day and the and the weeks that followed and reminding people that God was present uh, with the first responders and those in the recovery effort. Um, and and holding the hands of of those who were mourning the loss of their their children. I think one of the things that we uh, one of the things that we think that we can cure in this modern age is death. The reality is, it's going to claim all of us at one point or another, and it's not God's fault that we die. It's just a fact of human existence that I'm going to wind down at some point, and there's. It's it's terminal for all of us. Yeah. And I think that's the first step of, of realizing that, that it's not necessarily God's fault. But where can we look for hope 
even in the midst of difficulty and despair. And I, I remind people of that. And that's and maybe that's because of me and my own theological outlook. I don't believe that God has this master plan that we all have to follow, that some people are going uh, to have abuse and that some people are going to live these carefree lives. But what I do believe is that God is present there in our lives at every moment of our lives and ready and, ready and willing to help bring light even in to the midst of darkness and to bring hope in the midst of despair, that God is always ready to bring good out of any situation, no matter how de- desperate it might seem, um, if we're willing to be co-workers sure. with God. Yeah. So in back in your time in Portsmouth, did you see a lot of that when, um, when you had such involvement with the recovery community, when when mothers would lose children, I mean, would they would they come in with that anger and disappointment? Yeah. Um, I saw people. I saw family members. I did a funeral uh, of a young man who was was killed by his drug dealer over twenty five dollars, and they chopped this boy. They shot this boy, then chopped him up and stuffed him down a manhole. And so he was considered missing for a while, and they finally found his body after several weeks. And I remember doing that funeral and having to to not only help that family navigate through, but just uh, an entire community of young people. This kid was a uh, a first-year college student uh, at the local university, uh, was friends with a lot of people. And it was just tragic to see some of that. Uh, The other place that I saw it, I actually saw it in in a couple of different ways. Uh, one was people finding ultimately finding their sobriety, having family members who had either lost their lives or overdosed or situations like I mentioned who really were finding sobriety as a result of that and finding that at the church. Uh, also, um, like where you and I are from, the baptisms that I do, which are basically initiation rites into the church, they're mainly babies. You know, cause I that's was just going to talk about that. Because that's what we do. But in Portsmouth, my adult baptisms way outnumber the infants that we baptize because people were finding faith as adults, finding sobriety, finding healing, and ultimately becoming a part of that faith community. And the other thing, the third thing that was really noticeable that I knew that we were having an impact in helping bringing healing to people who were broken and hurt and wounded and felt like they'd been abandoned by God is that our church was in a in a pretty gritty urban neighborhood and we never had any um, vandalism issues in that church um, a little church around the corner from us that was only open on Sunday mornings and never a part of the community, they were always getting broken into and they were getting things stolen from them. Most of our doors were unlocked throughout the day, sometimes in late into the night. Uh, we never had a problem with it. And the only time that I was there, we had one act of vandalism uh, at our church. And there was a sign on the corner there at 6th and Court Street uh, in Portsmouth. And the sign had been ripped off one day. And my uh, uh, the fellow who takes care of the buildings and the grounds, he was there. And he's like, oh, what do you think about this? What should we do? Go order a new sign. And I told the fellow, I said, no, you know, just leave it for a few days and let's see what happens. And a couple days later, that sign appeared at the office 
office entrance to the church. And the guy who, who originally had noticed it had been taken was scratching his head. He said, well, what's that all about? I said, what probably happened is some kid or somebody else ripped that off of their wall and took it back to either their dorm room or their apartment. And somebody from the cover, recovery community in Portsmouth, which was big, um, saw that sign and said, you got 30 minutes to get that back to the church before I tear into you. <laughs> and, and it was partly because this church, if you wanted sobriety and were serious about it, everybody knew that that was the church that you went to because it was a place where they were meeting people where they were and trying to bring some hope back into people's lives who felt like they didn't have any place else to turn to. And, uh, you know, when, when people are out doing the things, you know, the, when the, the demons have you, I mean, there's no loyalty. There's no friendship. People will stab you in the back for you know, whatever they can get. But, you know, there's a, <clears throat> a few meetings that I go to and one in particular is a, uh, it's a speaker meeting, yeah. and there's 150 people there. It's a huge meeting, but you have you see all walks of life. Oh yeah, you see everybody. You, you see people that are, um, you know, that are really struggling. You see all demographics, all socioeconomic um, people, you know, represented, and there's no issues. Everybody's there for the same thing. Everybody's yeah. there to try and get healthy. Um, and as important as the steps are, it's the community and the fellowship that that is yeah. really key, and it really shines through uh, when when the same group of people, when they're in their addiction, it's not that way. Yeah. Um. So you know, and and I, even though I'm doing this show and and trying to raise awareness about a stigma about stigma, it still affects me. You know, whenever I'm in church, I think about getting up when there's announcements and saying something about this Thursday night meeting. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I think I worry about if I'm going to have, you know, tomatoes thrown at me or, or, or something. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's still, it still affects me. And uh, so, you know, th those are things that you work through. But, I mean, it, it's uh, – what, what do you think we can do to – improve improve the stigma uh, i think one of the things is just being honest with ourselves that's the first step is that um, there's a, there was a phrase in my childhood in um growing up in a in a particular religious tradition where we we would say you know we have all fallen short of the glory of god that was a common phrase that you would hear revivalist preachers remind you of and when they would say that they were talking to everybody you know, high and low, you know, from the president on down, you know, everyone had fallen short of the glory of God and needed redemption in some way or another. And I think that that is the first step for all of us, not just people in recovery, but people who aren't, you know, in recovery and people that won't ever uh, experience substance abuse issues is realizing that we all we all miss the mark. Uh, for uh, years ago, I was involved in, in prison ministry for a while, which you probably won't find that surprising. But I used to go into uh, prisons and do weekend retreats with the with with people uh, that were incarcerated, and uh, went into a couple of different prisons in the in the Kentucky uh, uh, state reform system. And one of the things that we would share with these guys is that the difference between the the inmates, the residents. And, and the people who were coming in to do these religious retreats is that you all got caught. 
And that was a bit of a joke, but really what it reminded them of is that we've all, we've all done things. You know, we've all done things that we look back on and think, man, I wish I could do that over again. And being honest with that. Uh, and the second being that we are part of a community that wants, that ought to want to bring healing. That that's part of part of the church's mission is to bring everyone into um, into into a healing, uh, whole wholesome relationship with God and with one another. That there is a restorative nature to uh, to faith communities, whether it's Christian or whatever tradition you might come out of. That there is this restorative nature of God setting things right in our lives and helping to bring healing and wholeness where there's brokenness. Um, and that goes for everybody. Right. Um, and you see some people come full circle in this thing uh, as far as, you know, stigma. I've had people, and it's probably the same in the church, people that may not have believed. and uh, But I've had people come to me and say, you know, I didn't believe in this addiction thing. I didn't buy it. I thought it was a moral failing. I thought you were... Um, no good. But since I've had my, a, a son that has gone through this yeah. and now I get it. So I, I'm sure that uh, there's people that come to the church where normally they might not have had spirituality or they yeah. might not have had religion that um, see the light, unfortunately, through a bad through situation. Yeah. Um. Real quick, I'm kind of bouncing around here, but did you have did you have and support medically assisted treatment at the church where you were? Uh, you know, like Suboxone and Methadone. It, yeah, you know what? It was. It's interesting because yeah, the the nonprofit that we worked with, the counseling center of of Portsmouth, uh, they did have um, ways of of doing treatment uh, through through uh, drug assisted uh, recovery. And and that, but that was, as you know, that's somewhat controversial mm-hmm. in the recovery community Absolutely. because of of helping them uh, get off of one substance through the use of another, and so that can be uh, controversial. Yeah. Um, of course, with my view of it, is that um, I want to I want to get people as close as I can to healing and recovery, and so I'm not going to necessarily take a position one way or another on that, um, but just recognize that there is some controversy among the ex- experts. Um, but my goal is to get people to sobriety in whatever road they might go down, because I think there are lots of different roads to that. Yeah, it, whatever whatever works uh, for each person is, you know, we're all, we all have a the same goal of getting out of yeah. what we're in, yeah. you know, and if it takes, you know, whatever it takes. I mean, the yeah. you know, the uh, the twelve um, step fellowships work for millions and millions and yeah. millions of people, but for some it doesn't. It doesn't, you yeah. know. And, and as long as you're you're working whatever you need to work, that's the um, that's the key. But uh, having always gone to church i mean we were kind of the christmas easter family um but but we we went and i grew i grew up there i was in the choir and um, but i i didn't lose my faith but i lost the relationship with the church for a long time i just i just didn't go and there were some some roadblocks there but i'm telling you 
being back in that relationship and mm -hmm. involvement and especially having my kids involved with choir and bell choir and, and, uh, you know, the, the after school, uh, program, which is today. That's right. <laughs> uh, Wednesday's my favorite day of the yeah. week. And so anyway, it's just, it's done wonders for me and you've done wonders for me. Thank you. Um, so uh, hopefully we can, uh, spread this, spread the word a little bit more, uh, however slow it may be, but to get people in, in our community more receptive to yeah. to this thing. So, Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head that it's all about relationship. I mean, ultimately, that, that one aspect of, of any faith community is developing relationship with God and with neighbor. And, and those, when, they, when they're fostered, when those healthy relationships are fostered, good things can only come out of that. And that means that sometimes those relationships are going to get a little weird, and, but you tr still try to maintain those relationships. When I was in Portsmouth at one point, I had five people in my congregation who were in the county lockup. Fortunately, I was a good friend with the county sheriff at the time. And so he would let me come in and I would do, once a week, I'd do a, a church service in the jail for those five Episcopalians that were in there on some type of drug. And they were all drug-related offenses. And these were people of all ages, from all socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, and here I was, this crazy, you know, Episcopal priest going into a jail, you know, to take communion into the because it was important for these people and developing those and maintaining those relationships, uh, which were vital. And yeah. that's what what it's about, really. Oh, sure it is. And uh, no, that's uh, great work to, to go in there because I'm sure that was hard at the beginning for yourself. Like, you know, oh, yeah. you know, reality check of you know, what, what am <laughs> I really doing here? That's right. <laughs> but you want to talk about, you know, we're, uh, relationships as they get fostered, you know, some of them getting weird. I mean, when you've got somebody that's uh, working through the steps and they got to go make amends oh, yeah. and they walk up to somebody – and it's and it's truly amazing how much people, even though they were so in such a bad way and doing horrible things to their brain, remember the things that they do to people, negative things. Yeah. But so when you walk up to somebody that you haven't seen in ten years and said, "Hey, man, I stole fifty bucks from me, and I just want to apologize," you know, as you slowly foster <laughs> those relationships yeah. and getting those things off your chest. But yeah, a lot of them they get rekindled in pretty strange ways. Yeah. So, well, I want to thank you for being here and uh, doing what you do and being uh, a great advocate for this in, in a really conservative town. And like I said, hopefully we'll get the, we'll get the masses behind us eventually. Absolutely. So thanks for being here. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.